Hello and welcome to The Rules of Investing. I'm your host, David Thornton. We've got a bit of a different episode for you today, which I think you'll really enjoy. A lot has been said about the change from growth investing to value investing. This shift has been easy to see in aggregate. In 2022, the MSCI World Growth Index was down 29.05%, compared to just negative 6.5% for the MSCI Value Index. But why has this shift occurred? What signals are investors watching? How should we interpret these signals? And what traps lie in wait to catch out investors? To answer these questions and more, I'm joined by Dr. Phil Hofflin, Portfolio Manager on the Australian Equity Team with Lazard Asset Management. If you're an Apple Podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a LiveWise subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to get notified whenever we post content. Not a subscriber yet? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. Okay, Phil, thanks for joining us once again on the Rules of Investing. It's a pleasure, David. Everything in today's market ladders up from the inflation problem, but a lot of input costs have eased since we last spoke in September. How's the market changed since then? Look, in terms of our views, I would say they haven't really changed dramatically. I think the first point perhaps to make you know, in all of this um, is that a reuse recession still does seem to be the most likely outcome. And I say this you know, uh, with provisor that obviously nobody knows, an awful lot of things can happen. But if I just run through sort of the things that I think we can be reasonably sure of, um, I think a US recession is still the central case sometime in 23, perhaps even very late in 23, early 24. Now, why do I say that? That's because the lead indicators are, are very weak. Uh, models of the probability of recession show that it is very high. And of course, we have the yield curve. So that's, if you will, the inside view of where we currently are. But it always helps to take the outside view. So if you step back and look at history, um, when inflation is this high and the Fed is was a little bit behind the curve, uh, you know, soft landings have been very rare. Um, so it's a very hard. It's very hard to do that. Now, the one proviso I have with all this is that um, there's about one trillion dollars of. Uh, uh, fiscal stimulus from the COVID period that still sits with uh, uh, households. And that is a trillion dollars above and beyond the level of their spending, if you look at that ratio. And uh, there is a chance that that trillion dollars still, still finds its way into the economy and into circulation over 23. And that would mean that the Fed has to push very hard to get the recession that it wants or the downturn that it wants. Um, and that pressures in the economy stay, including price pressures, stay much higher than you might think. So that really is a question of the timing. Um, in the end, it is, my, is our view that the central bank wins, right? They, they get what they want. And that's the second point, just on the Fed. Um, uh, it's not so much about inflation anymore per se, although inflation is very important for, for guiding expectations. It's about the labor market, right? And wages in the US are rising at over 5% per annum. And there are still 1.8 vacancies for every unemployed American. And that sort of tightness in the labor market is consistent with accelerating wages, not slowing wages. So no matter what inflation does in the short term, um, and you know, it presumably is going to fall quite a bit over 23, the U.S. has inflate, uh, has a wage problem, and they can only solve that by uh, lowering wages growth. 
I'd like to make a third point on the US, um, and that's just uh, to remind everybody of the fiscal situation in you know uh, in the United States. I mean, William Dudley, you know, the former head of the New York Fed and um, before that a partner Goldman Sachs, noted that you know the US fiscal deficit will come in at about five percent of GDP in two thousand twenty-three, and that's just too high when the unemployment rate is is the lowest in fifty years. Um, so at some stage, may not be twenty-three or perhaps twenty-four, or whenever. And there has to be a fiscal adjustment. They have to spend less or they have to tax more or both. Um, and it will become more political again because, uh, as you know, the Republicans have captured the, the House and they will now start pushing on the deficit again on, and the debt ceiling and all these sort of things becomes a political circus again. If I talk about the one thing where perhaps our views have changed over, you know, since, uh, since September, since we last spoke, it's just on what the Fed has done in 22. So um, the Fed has been very, very tight over 2022. Broad money aggregates actually fell over the year, and that is very rare. Um, it's happened before in the 1970 recession, in the Volcker recession, and briefly during the GFC. So the Fed has gone out, it's correcting its mistake from 2020 on the monetary side. Um, and that's what has led some people to expect that there's going to be a, a really dramatic downturn. But against, their, against that argument is the fact that there is still this buffer and uh, inflationary pressures are dependent on cumulative levels of money in the economy, not, not the one-year change. Uh, that tight policy uh, that increases the economic and asset price risks, obviously, in the short term. But it does mean that uh, uh, it reduces the inflation risk in the long run. The Fed is fixing up its its mistake. You mentioned before the fiscal stimulus. Um, to what extent could household savings, the high level of household savings, uh, work against the Fed? Well, as I say, I mean, in some ways, uh, perhaps the US has already surprised with how well it has withstood the tightening so far, although, you know, uh, the, the lags to monetary policy are famously long and variable. <laughs> um, so perhaps we shouldn't be that surprised. But yes, it is an, it is an obstacle, if you will, um, you know, to, uh, 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 to the Fed, in the, the sense that they still have this hoard of money that they're drawing down. The actual savings rate is quite low now, because the savings rate is the rate so if they're drawing down on their excess savings, mm -hmm. then that means the savings rate is low. Mm -hmm. But yes, the balance sheet effect of that. But in some ways, that's really just sort of taking the monetary view again and saying um, the excess money that was created was very, very large. It is being eroded by both uh, uh, inflation as prices rise, people have to spend more. And secondly, by the drawdown of, of, of that excess money. Um, and it at the current rate, it will run out round about the end of 23. And then in that sense, that buffer that is there will be gone. Um, and perhaps it will therefore take longer for the Fed to get that slowdown in the labor market that they want. So it seems to me you're a fan of the Fed in 2023, 22? Look, I, I, I think they have enhanced their credibility in 22, <laughs> if that's the term. <laughs> but if, if I sort of move on in terms of, again, still sticking with what we think we know, and as usual, you know, there, there, there are not that many things that we, that we can be reasonably sure of. We still continue to think the US market remains pretty expensive. It did fall 25% in real terms over 22. That's a really good start. 
But um, as we spoke last time, a concern is about margins being at cyclical peaks, interest costs that will go up, and the fact that corporate tax rates are still very low compared to history. So I think uh, the original expectation for 23 to be a tough year will probably be correct. Uh, there may be some pain in private equity space. There may be some uh, issues for REITs. Um, or, you know, the way the, mar the market commentators often put it, if the Fed tightens long enough, something breaks. Um, so that may well happen. If I go to Australia, mm. I think we're in a, we are in a much better position. And I think we're in a much better position for three main reasons. The first one is our excesses in 20 were nowhere near as bad as those in the US. So we'd have less of a hangover and an inflation problem because of that. We have on top of that a terms of trade boom, which fills the coffers, which is really good. Um, and lastly, we are lagged in this cycle. I'm not 100% sure as to why, because we all got COVID pretty much at the same time. But it really helps because other central banks are doing the job for the RBA because they're getting the global demand down and that cools the, you know, the global price pressures. And it also means that they can see what happens. And particularly useful for the RBA is, of course, watching New Zealand and its housing market. Um, you know, Wellington prices are now down well over 20%. And they'll be watching very carefully to see at what stage does that feed through into, into consumer spending in New Zealand. And therefore, they may be able to calibrate their job much better because they'll follow them. So it gives them, a, I think, a lot of advantage. Um, I think we mentioned this last time, and nothing's really changed there in the sense that in the US and in New Zealand, and extremely so in the UK, there's a problem with wages growth, right? There's a wage price spiral. In Australia, the evidence is still not there. There is no smoking gun in Australia. And if we don't have a wages problem, then of course the RBA's job is so much easier. They don't have to cause pain in the labor market really. They just have to calm it down a bit perhaps. Um, gives them many more options. So that puts them in a much better position. Lastly, on markets again, you know, ASX we think is less expensive. We're very open-minded as to whether there will be a downturn or recession in Australia. Uh, it will depend on whether you know wages do finally accelerate to be a problem or not. It depends critically on the housing market, but you know we can all watch that. But we can't really forecast. Um, and the last thing I'd say, just about all of these topics, uh, these macro topics, if and when a recession comes, we won't see it. Right? We, it will suddenly be upon us because that's what usually happens. Right? Uh, these are very nonlinear, sudden events. You can't forecast them. So in that sense, I think you have to keep a fairly open mind and in your portfolio, you know, you know, look for opportunities, in, you know, uh, idiosyncratic opportunities in various places rather than taking a position on, on, on the economy. Does a Fed that's slowing um, its rate hike, hike cycle give the RBA some breathing room in the sense that, you know, when the Fed hikes, the RBA has to some extent follow um, for currency reasons, among other reasons? Yes. I mean, it's, it, it, it's a very good point you raised there. Um, we have, we have, we experienced that, um, you know, in the sort of period from 2012 onward. When um, you'll recall, our the Australian dollar ended up being very high because the RBA tightened after the GFC, went back to close to to, 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 uh, to around I think uh, was it four percent, and it turned out to be unsustainable because the large economies in the Northern Hemisphere were running zero, um, and you can't stand out like that. The dollar was too high; it was causing problems. They eventually forced to cut, really in some ways, you know, uh, uh, against their will. Um, 
And there's, of course, the risk that, yes, the opposite happens if the rest of the world um, has very high rates, partly because you know they, they, they have fixed rate mortgages, so they can do that. Then there will be pressure on the RBA to raise just to yeah, you know, uh, support the dollar. At the moment, the dollar's recovered nicely. But if there was a big gap that opened up or gap in expectations and the dollar went down to 60 cents, below 60, it probably starts entering the equation. I think above 60, it's neither here nor there really, but certainly, certainly below 60, I think, would start to influence the thinking of the RBA. Okay, the last two years have been much better for value after a decade dominated by growth. Is this a structural shift? Is it mean reversion, normalization? Um, and whatever it is, how much further uh, does it have to go? Um, Look, I think it's a turn in the cycle, and some might, people might call that structural, but I, I, I think it's a, it's a cyclical turn, uh, you know, at the heart. Um, let me make a, a, a big statement here and say that, you know, the normalization is only about halfway through. And that is a, is a big statement given the uh, phenomenal year we've just had, right? So let me explain why I say this. I, I think the first thing is just the numbers, right? Um, you know, you... Uh, uh, you look at the divergence between high and low multiples in the market from 2019-20 into 21 in particular, and that was more extreme than the two-tiered market back in the in the dot-com boom. So everything with speculative blue sky appeal, whether it be crypto, or buy now, pay later, or whatever it is, went up 100 to 300% in that free money boom. Um, so to put some numbers around that, at the ASX 200 level, the top 20% of the top quintile of, of, of multiples you know, were 17 times in 2012. By 2017, they were 25 times um, and getting you know, a little bit above their long run average. And then they went to 56 times, an astonishing 56 times forward earnings in 2021. And during all that time, the low multiple stock uh, uh, multiples barely changed. So you got these enormous price gains really just based on multiples. So the stocks did incredibly well. But then the uh, bubbles started to burst, the multiples started to normalize last year, but they're back to 38 times at the end of December uh, 22. So we've gone all the way from 17 to 25, finally to 56. We're back at 38 times, still still too high. So there's still about half halfway to go. And you see this no matter which way you look at the data. You can look at ASX 100, MSCI, because, you know, Weights and compositions are different. You can look at it, X resources and mining, because they can distort things. It's very much the same message. We're about halfway back to normal. Now, a second reason why I, I say this is that the bubble is really played out in classic fashion, right? Um, in the sense that, for example, all the speculative stuff fell first, exactly what ha what's happened in, in past uh, 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 bubbles. And the perfectly okay, high-quality companies um, that just got really expensive, they take longer to mean revert. Um, and they take longer because there's no catalyst, right? They're just too expensive. There's nothing wrong with the company. There's no horrible announcement. There's no disaster lurking out there. And a good analogy is with Telstra News Corporation in the, in the dot-com boom. Um, for those who remember these things, you know, Telstra traded $8 back then, and it took until 2005, 2006 before it got back to something sensible like $4. It takes a long time. Um, and, you know, uh, I think uh, these, the, these bubbles take years to develop. They take years to normalize, you know, uh, uh, on the other side. 
one interesting thing about this is that uh, you know, and I talk about that fifty six times, which 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 seems outrageous. Is nobody rings the bell, right? There, there's there, there's no little uh, article on the front page of the AFR that says, you know, you no know, top multiple stocks now in fifty times, and it's the highest in in fifty years. Um, and if you look at stocks individually, uh, you'd be aware that the ASX is full of two hundred. Uh, unique and special stocks, and they are unique and special. Every company has its own dynamics and, a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and its own valuation. So it's very hard to see it just by looking at individual pieces. You really have to aggregate all the data in a systematic fashion over a long period of time before you can see this. And then you can see it you know, very, very clearly, you know, 17 to 56, back to 38. And, you know, and the dynamic is, is, is you know, you know, it's quite apparent. I mean, it's really, it really reflects the fact that in markets, there's an awful lot of noise, right? Um, I, there was a very famous uh, paper of, all the way back from 1981 when Robert Schiller uh, was a very young man uh, and nowhere near as famous as he became later <laughs> and certainly with, uh, without his Nobel Prize. And, and they did a famous study <coughs> where they tried to apportion the volatility in the fundamentals, <coughs> pardon me, um, with the volatility of the market index. And their conclusion was that only about 20% of the volatility of the market can be explained by the volatility of the fundamental drivers like earnings, interest rates, and so forth. 80% is just noise above and beyond even the fundamental variation. You know, it's things are in fashion or they're out of fashion, and at times it's panic and it's euphoria, right? <clears throat> so um, there's an awful lot of noise, and that's at the aggregate level. And stocks are twice as volatile as the index overall. So, you know, the fact that the market is noisy, has a very low signal-to-noise ratio, <clears throat> is really quite important to the market. In fact, there are various aspects of the market that you can only understand when you think of it as a very, very noisy market with a lot of statistical uh, uh, up and down. So Phil, don't don't tell me that all this fundamental an analysis that everyone's you know talking about that that you're doing and your peers are doing. Don't tell me that that's all a fight for twenty percent. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, it, it probably is because you know there is very low signal to noise. Um, you know um, there are, are, are quite some numbers. You know uh, uh, if you're interested, but you know. Um, there are certain strategies and investment philosophies that have done very well in the long run, but that's in the long run. And in the short term, there's just an awful lot of noise. And as I say, some parts of the market you can really only understand, and some of these are really important parts of the market, when you think of the fact that there is so much noise in it. Why do we always hear about um, value traps? Why not growth traps? Well, look, I mean, this is this is one of those things. I mean, I mean let, let, let me sort of set it up, you know, um, you know, by uh, by reference to um, to that um, to that sort of statistical thinking. And the way we have to uh, think about this is is to say, look, um, at any given in any given year, there's about a one fixed one one in six chance that any particular stock will have what we shall term a disaster, right? Now, a disaster is, you know, the sort of thing. It's on the front page of the AFR. The CEO and the chairman have to resign. You know, there's a horrible profit warning because one division has just completely lost control of costs. Uh, you know, there's an there's a, there's a, there's a accounting scandal overseas. There's a public inquiry called, <clears throat> you know, the sort of things that happen. And we look at the volatility of stocks against the index. 
one-sixth of stocks fall more than 30% again, relative to the index in any given year. So this happens quite a bit. So um, <clears throat> you refer to this idea of, of a value trap, um, and we can understand it in the context of, um, of that sort of statistical thinking. Um, so value traps are stocks that uh, you know value managers get uh, a hard time about because they're sort of thing that looks cheap, but it keeps on falling and it keeps on looking attractive. They keep on holding it, and it ends up being you know a bit of a disaster. Well, <clears throat> um, let's let's, let's, uh, let's come up with a, with a mental model, if you will, a thought experiment to to explain this. Let's say you've got two managers, and I, I'm going to make them complete caricatures. So there's the value manager and the growth manager, right? And they both hold stock X. And stock X trades at $10, and they both think it's worth 12, so that's why they own it. And then um, the, you know uh, random events happen. And uh, the stock gets hit. It's one of those one, one in six that uh, does really badly. Um, and it falls to $6. So it's down from 10 to 6. And there will be a different response by the two managers. Um, and again, these are caricatures. So I, 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 you know, I'm not trying to cast any aspersions on anyone. But the value manager will typically say, oh dear, that, that was awful. Uh, it's not worth 12, or as we thought, it's worth nine. That, you know, very disappointing, but it's down at six. So we're clearly going to hold this. Um, the caricature growth manager will say, well, I look for stocks that are very high quality, have high returns on equity, that are predictable, and that have a long runway for growth and with good management. And this has really shaken my faith. You know, some of these things are not true, and they're much more likely to sell it. Now, <clears throat> I don't know, David, if you play board games. Uh, on occasion. <laughs> on occasionally. Well, sometimes when you roll a six, do you know what happens next time around? You get another six. So there's a chance that the following year, guess what? The same stock X gets hit. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> the value manager is, 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 is really unhappy with this. And he says, oh, cripes, now it's not $4. And I don't think it's even worth nine. It's worth seven. <clears throat> but he keeps on holding it. And it's, and it's towards the end of the second year when some of the investors start, start saying, gee, you've lost a lot of money in this stock. Uh, you know, um, you've got this really badly wrong. Uh, but remember, the growth manager who sold it, he's got another stock that's got the same problem. So there's no difference in total performance, but it looks bad because it's in one stock. And I, I mean, you know, I'm going to say this, David, occasionally lightning strikes three times. <laughs> and then the stock looks absolutely awful. And people say, look, you've just got this horribly wrong. You know, uh, you know the stock's now down at, at, three, at two or $3, lost 70% of its value. But it is because the value manager will always value it and make the decision based on that. And even within that model, you can see that in each of these three years, the growth managers had another, they had a problem with another stock, but it wasn't the same one. So it doesn't get the attention. So this is why people talk about value traps, not uh, growth traps. Now, GMO did a study uh, some years ago where they looked at how much do stocks fall that have these events. And in fact, growth stocks tend to fall more because expectations are higher, but also because Perhaps the holders are more likely to sell when things go really badly wrong because they see that as a signal that the thesis is broken. So it's not the case that um, this explains any performance difference, but it does explain uh, uh, how investors look at it because you will focus on one stock if it's done particularly badly. That's what we tend to that's what we tend to focus on and talk about. So that's why you get value traps, but you don't get growth traps. It seems at the moment. A lot of talk is around earnings, earnings expectations. To what extent should we trust 
bottom-up aggregate EPS forecasts and how much weight should we put into you know, EPS forecasts at the company level? Uh, look, <clears throat> let, let me again use that same sort of model to explain why I think aggregate bottom-up earnings forecasts are going to be usually wrong and wrong in one direction, generally, namely they're too high. Um, and again, you know, let, let's do a little experiment um, in, in our thoughts. Let's say we've got an index that has exactly 10 stocks in it because that's really easy to, to count. And they each earn $1 and they each grow their earnings by 10% per annum. Right? So they've got a really easy setup. But one-tenth of those stocks every year will have the disaster. Right? And in that year, it earns absolutely zero. Right? So in the first year, we've got nine stocks earning a dollar and one has a zero. And then the bottom-up analysts get to work and say, well, what are these stocks going to earn next year? And they quite correctly say that all 10 of them will earn $1.10. Because uh, it is in fact the case that for any given stock, 90% of the, you know, in our little model, that is going to be correct 90% of the time. That is the sensible and correct expectation for that stock. Yet when we add them all up, of course, we conclude that we've got 10 stocks earning $1.10. So we've got $11 of aggregate earnings. There were nine we, we, we know this year. So we're going to have 20-something percent earnings growth. But the fact is, of course, we won't because there'll be some other stock, one of the 10, we don't know which one, that will have that problem. And it's an intriguing situation because for each individual stock, the $1.10 is the best guess. It is the correct value to use. But there was something we're leaving out, namely the bit we don't know, and we can't forecast which one of the 10. So um, that's why in aggregate, we'll get the wrong number. And again, it's one of those rare situations where having more information gives you a worse outcome. It's almost like the fallacy of composition. It's a fallacy of composition. You do all the bottom-up detailed work and you add it up and you almost know it's going to be wrong because there is an element you can't incorporate, which is that that you know that uh, uh, that that random fact that the future unfolds, right? And remember, um, there are two bits, of, two parts to the noise. There's the twenty percent that is the future unfolding, and on top of that, it's the eighty percent that's noise, noise, right? It's the exaggeration, it's the overreactions, and so forth. So there's an awful lot of noise, and again, we can you can understand that phenomenon by by thinking about the market as having a lot a large stochastic element to it. So staying on that dynamic between um, the noise and what individual companies are doing, how do you know when market momentum takes over from growth based on earnings and vice versa? Look, I, I mean, I think you can you can track the the um, you know the different multiples and 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 earnings and price developments for obviously momentum stocks versus value stocks or growth stocks versus value stocks. Um, you know, the data I spoke about earlier, where we track you know how are the different parts of the market priced, is a great indicator of where you are in that sort of cycle. Um, being aware of it doesn't allow you to. Um, make any forecasts or know where it's going to go next, right? When you see a bubble inflating, that's that's the problem with bubbles, right? They inflate and they're 20% above where they should be and then they're 40 and they're 60. And where do they go? Do they go to 80? Do they go to 100? Nobody knows. In this particular case, this the, the, the multiple ended up 130% above where it normally trades. You can't forecast that, but you can certainly see it developing and you can try to take advantage of it on the other side. Now, still, I, I, you know, you know, uh, when we think about this sort of uh, uh, noise element of the market, you know, 
And you're quite right, you know, that, you know, as fund managers, you know, we come in and we uh, say, we hope our authoritative and well-informed uh, comments about stocks. And we know that a fair few of them are going to be wrong. And some of them, in fact, are going to be hit by that, by that disaster in that, in that particular year. So we know uh, that we're subject to a lot of noise and it's really important to, to keep that in mind. But what I want to, uh, what I'd like to focus on is the fact that, um, that noise, you know, I spoke about two phenomena, you know, why value traps and never growth traps, you know, why you shouldn't trust aggregate uh, bottom-up market EPS forecasts. But there's actually a mechanism that is, to me, is very important. And it also explains, I believe, to a significant extent, of course, the value premium. Um, so the value premium, obviously, you know, is just the fact that, um, or value anomaly, as it's sometimes called, just the fact that value stocks have done so much better in the long run, which to efficient market adherence is an uh, you know, anomaly. And the way I'd like to explain this is by starting off with a really controversial statement, David, um, really provocative, and say that value wins because it's got better growth. <laughs> Good. Yeah, I got you to laugh. Go on. Value portfolios win because they have better growth. Now, be very careful how I say this. Value portfolios have better growth. I didn't say the stocks. Portfolios. Now, let me explain uh, uh, how the noise uh, sort of uh, leads to that outcome. First thing is, I should just mention the long run record. Um, I don't know whether I've mentioned to you here, here before, but, um, you know, um, uh, Kenneth French of Pharma French fame, you know, he keeps his database at, at Dartmouth. And it's a great place to visit if you want to look at data. There's an awful lot of it there. Uh, but here's data since 1926, so we're coming up to the 100 years soon. Um, and he does something really simply, just, you know, classifies once a year. He goes out, takes all the S&P stocks, puts them into, sorts them by price to book, puts the lowest price to book 30% as the value category, the highest 30% as the growth category, follows the performance for a year. And he does that. And he's done that 96 times so far. <laughs> Although I think he did some back work uh, when he started. He's not that old. Um, and over that time, there's this really simple mechanism. Um, the value portfolio is now ahead by 3,100%. Uh, so about 30-fold or about 3% odd ahead of the growth portfolio. So it's a long, short return. Keep that in mind. You know, over that almost 100 years, which is just extraordinary. Um, you know, Gertzman at Yale has pushed the, the, the data back further. It now looks like we've got about 200 years of style history and that over that time, uh, the value portfolio is outperformed by a thousand fold. That's about 100,000 percent. And again, that comes to about 3% per annum on a long, short basis. So there's this uh, remarkable uh, phenomenon. And when you think about this, David, um, where did it come from? Well, it could in principle come from two things, earnings or multiples. And a moment's thought will tell you that over 100 years, the multiple change has made no difference whatsoever, right? Even if it's been 10% over 100 years, that's, that, you know, no, that disappears to, to, to a couple of bips. So clearly, you know, the reason why the, the value portfolio was in 10 times then and the growth portfolio in 20 times, and they aren't the same today, but the prices are so different, the 30-fold, is that the earnings are 30-fold. So the only way this could have possibly have happened, you know, is for the earnings for the value portfolio to have grown dramatically more. Um, 
And I can tell you uh, in Australia, we have access to the MSCI index and they have value and growth sub, sub indices that sum to the total index and they publish EPS numbers and so forth for those. And whether it's trailing or forward or whatever a measure you want to use, whether you want to go by five years or 10 years or 15 years, the value portfolio has got better earnings growth than the growth portfolio. Um, so nothing's changed. In fact, despite, as you said uh, a bit earlier, David, you know, it's been a tough time for value over this entire period. While it's been tough, the, uh, on an earnings basis, the, the value portfolio has kept on gaining over the growth portfolio. What led to the poor returns was the multiples from the other side where, you know, inflated so much. So now how do we explain that? Well, the usual explanation of the value premium you're very familiar with, the market overreacts due to noise. Uh, it gives the value investor an opportunity on a cons pretty consistent basis to buy stocks that are undervalued. They go up in price eventually and you get that excess performance, right? Um, <clears throat> and of course, it's not the case that they necessarily do phenomenally well, but they do better than expected. And the growth stock does, does fine, but unfortunately not as well as expected. And that gives you that difference. Well, let me give you an alternative explanation. <clears throat> Pardon me. Alternative explanation based on noise. Right? And it's this, that um, if you think of, let's say, the, uh, um, the, uh, the MSCI indices, whenever the stock is on a high PE, it's in the growth index. And if due to some events or perceptions or sentiment, it falls in price and the, the multiple drops, it, it, it detracts from the, from the um, growth index and ends up in the value index eventually. And if it then recovers, it does well in the value index and ends up in the growth index. And stocks move from one to the other all day long. And not only does this change the performance in the long run, but you know, let me explain this in a really simple term so it just shows up in the earnings. Let's say I'm a value manager and I've got a stock and it's done pretty well, it's done 15 times. And I say, you know what, happy with this stock, but you know, it's 15 times, I think it's pretty fully valued. Over here's a stock on 10 times. And I take my money and I put it in the ten, stock on 10 times. I have just grown my earnings by 50%. I've got a 15 times stock mm. to a 10 times stock. The money that I own, so the earnings I own through that money is gone up 50%. The average company takes about eight years to do that. I've done it in one switch. I have more earnings. Conversely, you know, and again, I, you know, I, uh, it's a caricature. The value manager uh, sits there and he says, this stock, you know, it's really disappointed us. Um, it doesn't look as good as it was. Perhaps the runway isn't there and so forth. It's on 15 times. But I tell you what, over here's a stock. It looks really, really fantastic. It really has an enormous potential. Uh, management is excellent and so forth. That's on 30 times, but I, 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 I think this is going to be go for a very long run, so I'm happy to buy it on 30 times. You're going from 15 to 30 times, he's just halved his earnings. And I can say he better be right about the growth because he's got to, it's got to double before he just gets back to what he sold. So every time you make a change of this type, you buy a high multiple stock, higher multiple stock, you lose earnings and you buy a low multiple stock, you gain earnings. If I have, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, a uh, uh, $100 and I own a stock on 15 times, then, you know, you know by definition, I've got earnings of, of what is it, $6.6. $6 .6. If I take the 
that hundred dollars and put it instead in a stock on ten times, I've got ten dollars of earnings. Mm -hmm. So my earnings have gone up from six dollars sixty to ten dollars. It's a fifty percent gain. So, um, so when you uh, and this is the reason why in the long run the growth portfolio <coughs> um, faces that headwind and noise in the market, you know, with multiples going up and down all day just due to noise provides a constant source of value add for the value manager or the value index for that matter, right? Because then we keep on transitioning between the two. So in the literature, it's sometimes called transitions or migrations. And when you, and there are people who've actually disaggregated the performance into, okay, how much do the stocks grow? And how much do you add or subtract from migrations? And migrations, unsurprisingly for value portfolios are really, really important. Uh, because they consistently add value. And this is why you come up with this you know, rather counterintuitive uh, conclusion, in fact, that uh, value portfolios do better because they grow their earnings faster. And in the long run, by quite a lot faster. And ultimately, it comes down to the noise in the market that is, you know, you know, that drives that, the perceptions that change. It's completely equivalent in explanation to the one that says, there's a lot of noise and things get too cheap. You know, it's just another way of thinking about it. It's thinking about it not just from prices, but in terms of the earnings. So this is an insight that tells you why value portfolios actually win in the long run because of superior earnings growth, which is quite a counterintuitive sort of conclusion to come to. Okay, so without giving away the farm, how does Lazard construct its portfolios given all the concepts we've talked about? You know, what trailing indicators to use, forward indicators, you know, to what extent do you uh, incorporate those migrations you just mentioned? Look, the migrations, um, they're given to you by the market, right? Um, you, there's nothing you can do about them. Um, and, you know, another feature that's worth pointing out is that company management too has no control over, over the multiple that the market will ascribe to it, right? It's completely beyond their control. It's beyond the control of any individual investor, but the market overall has mood swings and sentiment. And, you know, as I say, it's the extra 80% on top of the fundamentals. And they will change the multiples and valuations. And what the, what the value manager or valuation manager does is he takes advantage of it by saying, look, um, this stock is now fairly priced and I'm no longer really that excited by it. But look, over here is a stock that, you know, on reasonable assumptions is being priced too cheaply. Um, so that dynamic is always there. In, in our case, um, we very much focus on underlying earnings because, of course, one of the problems with saying I'm going to go from a stock on 20 times to 10 times is, yeah, but are the, 10 are the earnings that are on 10 times sustainable or they're going to go backwards or whatever? So, um, and in a mechanical index, there's no check on that. MSCI just says, yep, you are moving from there to there. Um, However, you know, we obviously look, we do the fundamental work and we come up with normalized earnings. So normalization just means, you know, adjusting for margins, you know, where companies are in cycles, commodity prices, you know, tax rates, um, uh, you know, asset turn, if that's an important, you know, you know, you know, factor, all of these sort of things. We even go to normalizing the balance sheet a bit. You know, if a company has too much debt, well, it probably has to sell some assets or de-gear, which impedes earnings. If it's undergeared, it has some opportunity to deploy money from cash into, into earning assets, which helps EPS. So you try to adjust all these things and you try to come up with what we think is a robust number for how much this stock should earn 
on average across the cycle because we look three years out and really we choose three years because we know that we know nothing about what's going to be happening in three years. It could be boom, it could be bust, it could be anything in three years' time. So we say, what? Um, let's assume it's it's average. And then um, if the market prices the stock higher than that or lower than that, we're saying we're on the right side of the average if we buy it, if it's below, and we are uh, you know, on the right side of the average if we don't own it if it's too high. And again, it's a fundamentally statistical assessment because one of the things we do also know is that you know, when we come up with our completely normalized number, it's going to be wrong. Right? It's going to be right in a statistical sense, mm -hmm. in the sense that you're more likely to be right if you say things are going to be average and mean revert, then if you have a forecast that is things are going to are absolutely phenomenal and they're staying like that forever now, or things are absolutely awful and they'll stay like that forever now. Those are bad forecasts. So we hope to have uh, uh, to be right in the long run. And the rest is, you know, comes from having num numbers of stocks. So you diversified across sectors and different and different themes and drivers. And that and therefore in the long run. And again, you know, this is where the noise comes in. You can outperform um, despite the noise. So the noise in some ways, particularly for value management, is really important because it allows you to outperform. But it also means that over any given two-year period, well, occasionally you have a bubble inflating and it, and it really, uh, what you're doing doesn't look very sensible and your performance is really disappointing. But um, it all comes back, of course, you know, uh, uh, on the other side. And I've done the numbers for our portfolio. And um, I said earlier, you know, that the value, the MSI value index has grown its earnings much better than the growth index. Well, we've grown ours better than the value index uh, because, you know, we've been, we've been focusing on underlying earnings, um, you know, and we've been, you know, uh, probably you know, obviously more selective than, the, the, than just the value index. So <clears throat> um, if you do this and you follow the process and you're very disciplined about it, um, then you can, in the long run, you know, get those additional returns. And, you know, um, a couple of percent may not impress uh, in any given year, but if you get that on average over an extended period, you know from, you know, from compounding, it makes an enormous difference to the, to the ultimate clients. So when we talk about the macro that you factor in, it's less macro noise and if what you're really factoring in is long-term statistical trends into your models, is that correct? Um, so, on a bottom-up perspective, um, you know, let's take a topic example. Topical example, um, James Hardy. Right? Mm -hmm. um, it's a it's a good company. We've owned it in the past. Uh, you know, we, we 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 do like their model. In some ways, there's an element of a tech company, James Hardy, despite the fact that it's been building materials. It has. A better way of uh, it has a better mousetrap, right? It has a cheaper, lower capital intensive way of making their product and it's a good product. So they've gained a lot of market share. So we've had a long history with this company, and as I say, we've owned it for extended periods. Um, it then became very expensive, and we stopped owning it, and now it's fallen because um, one of the sectors in the United States, and as you know, they're, they're, they're very much in the United States company. One of the sectors in the United States that is uh, obviously going to be hit very hard by the interest rate rises is housing. Um, Americans have fixed mortgages, but the marginal new buyer who wants to build a home, he faces much higher interest rates. So um, there, there's a steep downturn coming. Uh, and for instance, uh, housing sentiment in the United States, astonishingly enough, is lower than it was in the GFC, which was a housing bubble bursting. I mean, it's astonishing. It hasn't been as, as low since Paul Volcker was Fed chair 
in the in the early 80s. Um, so there's a big downturn there. And the way we're going to value James Hardy is to say, okay, um, we can't ignore the downturn. We're going to put that in. But eventually, over time, we will mean revert this out in the future. And we say that in three, four years' times, we don't know where James Hardy will be or where the US economy will be. It'll be average. They'll get their market share gains through that period as normal, but there will be a big downturn in the overall cycle. It won't be anywhere near as bad as the one in the G in the GFC because there's no oversupply of housing in the US this time around. In fact, there's probably a bit of undersupply of anything. So it will not be as deep as it was then. Back then, housing starts years fell from over 2 million to half a million. So housing starts fell 75 plus percent. So it was absolutely horrific for the builders, as you can imagine. It will not be like that this time, but we do want to build that in and then say, you know, when you take all into consideration, the up, upfront pain and the long run and the long run average and the, and the fact that it's a good business and so forth, what is our valuation? And we compare that to the share price and we'll buy it or not, depending on what the market does. And, you know, in some ways, we hope that at some stage, the market overreacts and says, this is absolutely awful, right? And that's um, where noise does you some that's where the noise, Yeah, the 20% is the real signal, but there's there's a lot more to it than that. Uh, the stock was very expensive. So it already halved, right? So the reaction has already been enormous in terms of price, much bigger than the fundamentals. And if get, if, if there's a deep downturn, it will get worse. And, and there's a chance yet we get to buy it. So we do factor in what we know about the short term. You know, similarly, when we have an, an energy company, then we know at the moment they're making a lot of money. And you do want to put that in. It's real cash flow. Uh, but we know that in four or five years' time, well, we have no idea where the energy cycle will be. So we put in our long-run numbers. And we've always done it that way. So, um, yes, you have to uh, uh, value the short term, but it's going to be very much anchored by the long run. So our valuations don't move up and down as much. And we hope the market overshoots and undershoots and gives us a chance to buy and sell. Mm -hmm. Phil, this has been an amazingly deep uh, conversation. I think you should write a book, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, there, there, there are a lot of these little phenomena that I've learned to understand over the, over the, over the years. Uh, those ones you spoke about and a couple more. And you know, you know, perhaps it'd be nice to write them up. Perhaps I should do that. Perhaps not a book. Though. That sounds like. Uh, <laughs> well, in the interim, work. I'm sure our uh, listeners will get a lot out of it. So, uh, Phil, oh, thanks, for, thanks very much for joining us. This Thank you very much for your opportunity, David. That's it for today's episode. Hope you got a lot out of it. I know I sure did. For more daily content like this, be sure to sign up to livewiremarkets.com. I'll see you next time.